you so much. Good morning. Well, this morning what I'd like you to do is to take your Bibles and join with me as we're turning to our Old Testament to Second Chronicles, where there are two elements to be found here in chapter 17 and again in chapter 19 that I think are going to shed some light on where things stand, not only personally but nationally. And as we turn to these verses, what strikes me about what you and I will find here is that in these past days, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a justice on our Supreme Court, was speaking at the University of Chicago about her take on the ruling of Roe v. Wade in 1973, and somehow was making a connection to what the Supreme Court is going to be deciding upon regarding the Defense of Marriage Act and the whole matter of same-sex marriage and the likes. And so I thought it would be rather fascinating now as we continue in our series in Second Chronicles to look very carefully at a passage of Scripture in which the believer has got to ask himself or herself, what is my relationship to the judicial process? This is critically important because biblical ethics has bearing upon all aspects of life because everything is sacred. Everything comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to be doing is to pondering, thinking, reflecting, and applying truth to life. What we're going to do is to, in our reading, to get ourselves started, is to begin with the end in mind by looking at chapter 19. And I'm going to start with verse 4 and take it down through the end of the chapter, gives us a sense of how Jehoshaphat saw how God's word related to the court system. So in verse 4 of 2 Chronicles 19, we're told Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem. He went out among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord. God of the fathers. He appointed judges in the land, in each of the fortified cities of Judah. And he told them, Consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord, who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for... The Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. In Jerusalem also, Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests and heads of Israelite families, to administer the law of the Lord, settle disputes. And they lived in Jerusalem. And he gave them these orders. You must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. In every case that comes before you from your fellow countrymen who live in the cities, whether bloodshed or other concerns of the law, commands, decrees, or ordinances, you ought to warn them not to sin against the Lord. Otherwise, his wrath will come on you and your brothers. Do this, and you will not sin. Amariah, the chief priest, will be over you in any matter concerning the Lord. And Zebediah, son of Ishmael, the leader of the tribe of Judah, will be over you in any matter concerning the king. 
and the Levites will serve as officials before you. Act with courage, and may the Lord be with those who do well. Now, what we're going to try to do is to understand how the moral law shapes the national law and how all this relates to the personal issues of the hour. To do that, we're going to have to start by looking to God in prayer. So, our Father, we need, again, tremendous insight. Insight that comes from your word. An insight, Father, that is rooted deeply in who you are and what you've said. We're thankful, Father, that we can, in a nation such as this, open up scriptures freely, worship you freely. But at the same time, you call upon us to worship you biblically. So we need to allow truth to apply to life. So, Lord, I pray now that you will equip us to be able to make sense of what's here and be very relevant and practical in the way in which we approach these verses. Now, you know the needs that are here. You know the struggles that people are facing. You know the weight, the burden that's on a particular individual, and it might be right now job-related. For someone else, it's health-related. It's a third person, Father, who's in a very strange relationship right now, and they're looking for, for something that will, that will unlock this very difficult challenge. Speak to that heart. Warm these hearts. Challenge these wills. Engage these minds. Because once again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the scene that appears on the screen behind me. The man with his arms lifted upward is George Whitfield. Probably one of the greatest evangelists who have ever walked the earth. He had a very powerful influence upon the people of this land just before the Revolutionary War, before the writing of the Declaration of Independence, before the writing of the Constitution. He had a tremendous influence on people coming to saving faith, and there was a stirring movement of spiritual awakening within our land. An artist captures the portrait of his arrival in Connecticut. But let me tell you of a farmer who describes the scene leading up to this moment. Now, it pleased our Lord, he writes, and he writes in the mid-1700s, so this is the English of the moment. It pleased God to send Mr. Whitfield into this land, and we were so longing to hear the weird talk. There was a messenger who said Mr. Whitfield preached at Hartford and Wethersfield yesterday and is going to be speaking in Middletown, Connecticut, this morning at 10 o'clock. I was in my field at work. I dropped everything, ran home, got my wife, my family, and we made our way. 
I saw before me a cloud or fog rising, a first thought off from the great river. But as I came nearer the road, I heard a noise, something like a low rumbling thunder. And I presently found it was the rumbling of horses' feet coming down the road. And this cloud was a cloud of dust made by the running of horses' feet. It rose some rods into the air over the tops of the hills and trees until I could see men and horses slipping along in the cloud like shadows. And when I came near, it was like a steady stream of horses. And the rider, scarcely a horse more than his length behind another, all of a lather and foam with sweat, their breath rolling out their nostrils, a cloud of dust every jump. Every horse seemed to go with all his might to carry his rider to hear the gospel being proclaimed. No one spoke a word along the way, mile upon mile upon mile, but everyone pressing forward with growing and growing haste. And when we got down to the old meeting house, there was a gathering of three to 4,000 people assembled together. We got off from our horses, shook off the dust as the pastors arrived on the scene, and I turned and looked toward the great river and saw ferry boats running swiftly forward, backward, bringing over loads of people as well. The oars rode nimble and quick. Everything, men, horses, women, boats, everybody seemed to be struggling for life. The land and the banks over the river looked black with people and horses. All along the 12 miles, I see no one at work in his field. Everyone's come. And then Mr. Whitfield arrives on the scene. All becomes quiet. And I hear and listen as the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed through this man. And there is such a powerful movement of the Spirit upon us and God's truth being pressed into our hearts. What's being described here is what's been known in American history as the first great awakening. Known as a revival, a stirring of people's hearts towards the Word, the will, the Son of God. It was a starting point, but it was not an ending point. And what we want to do now is to get our arms around this entire story that's unfolding and ask ourselves what does God have to say to us today? in light of what he has done in times yesterday? And how does the truth that was communicated yesterday relate to the issues of the hour of today? What I want to do with you is to look at two powerful distinctives of spiritual awakenings that occur within a land. They have to start individually, personally, before they will have true impact nationally two significant distinctives of spiritual awakenings. The first we're going to phrase like this, number one. Authentic spiritual awakenings begin with revival. 
which is shaped by sound biblical teaching. But to fully understand the scope of this, we need to begin to look at what was the ignition switch that brought this form of spiritual awakening to the Israelite, the people of Judah. We pick it up in chapter 17, and frankly, I'm going to start in verse 3, where you and I are informed that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah. Interestingly, his name means literally in the Hebrew, Yahweh judges. There's going to be more than irony to this story as Jehoshaphat's being used by God to put together the judicial court, they'll be rendering decisions in the land. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years, he walked in the ways his father David had followed. He did not consult the Baals. Now, notice with me, as you begin to inch your way forward, that phrases leap out at us. The Lord was with him. He walked with the Lord. He didn't consult, did he, the Baals. In other words, he knew that the ten tribes to the north had opted for an alternative spirituality. They would be looking for something and someone other than the true God. They turned to the Baals. They had been brought into the land via Jezebel, the queen of the ten tribes to the north. Jehoshaphat is going to have to create a sense of biblical boundaries to protect the people from this kind of spiritual influence. But before he could impact others, he would have to start with his own heart. Likewise, before you and I can truly impact others, we've got to start with our own hearts. The Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years, he walked in the ways his father David had followed. He did not consult the Baals. Notice in verse 4, you and I are told, but sought the God of his father. What the writer of the Chronicles wants you and me to begin to ponder at this point is that if my people, who are called by my name, will what? Humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, Then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, before he expects others politically to be involved in seeking the Lord, he devotes himself personally to seeking the Lord, the three of the four conditions. And so now, you and I spot that phrase, don't we, in chapter 17? He sought the God of his Father followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel, he knew then that there were competing loyalties in the land. Now ask yourself, am I positioning my heart, my entire being, to exclusively follow God? 
Or do I have some bells lurking in the background of my own, of my own soul that are competing right now for my exclusive loyalty? What's your bell? There is a combination of spiritual resolve in Jehoshaphat's heart toward God combined with a determined removal of false gods surrounding Jehoshaphat's life. Resolve and removal. Continue on. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. Mark what comes next. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. He looked over the landscape and now asked, and politically speaking, where are we spiritually most vulnerable? And he had those items removed from the land. What strikes me here in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 Here is a man whose heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord. You will not be able to be part of a movement of transforming a country nationally, politically, until you are absolutely determined to have your heart exclusively devoted to God personally. It's your starting point, not your ending point. But it is your starting point. It was the Welsh Revival of 1904, and newspaper reporters were canvassing people in the streets, trying to get a sense of what had taken place and the impact it was having on people's lives. It was late one night. A newspaper reporter walked up to a police officer out on the street. Do you know where I can find people who can talk about the Welsh revival and what's been occurring in this region? The policeman smiled and looked at the reporter. The Welsh revival? It's found here, he said, as he pointed toward his heart. Now, God works from the inside out. He moves from the internals to the externals. And so what you and I have to do is to recognize our starting point. Before we can deal culturally, let alone politically, we've got to deal internally and spiritually. What is the true heart condition that I've even brought into this worship experience this morning? Could I begin by pointing at my heart? Now, A heart devoted to the ways of the Lord, in verse 3 through 6, prepares for a ministry devoted to the word of the Lord, in verse 7 through 9. Look at what comes next. In the third year of his reign, what does he do? He sends all these officials into the various towns of Judah, in verse 7. And what is their task? Look at verse 9. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord, 
they went around to all the towns of Judah and taught the people. Where there is a spiritual awakening occurring within a land, there is a combining effect. Hearts devoted to the ways of the Lord, ministry devoted to the word of the Lord. This is the ignition. This is the trigger. God is about to do something different. Something exciting. He would do it with Josiah later in Second Chronicles. He would do it with Ezra and Nehemiah. And in the New Testament, there was a king by the name of Jesus that would send the 70 out. And likewise, they would go about proclaiming the gospel in Luke chapter 10. And then he would descend disciples into all the nations in Matthew chapter 28. In other words, there was a profound movement of instruction. The internals now are beginning to move towards the externals. A heart devoted to the ways of the Lord, verse 3 through 6. A ministry devoted to the word of the Lord, verse 7 through 9. And what impacts our thinking at this point is that what Jehoshaphat was doing was that he was establishing that authority was found not in the king himself, but in the law of God. Now, the challenge right now in America is the challenge of authority. We began by referencing what Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg had said with regard to 40 years of Roe v. Wade. And furthermore, when you and I begin to think even more so about what's coming our way in the next few weeks from the Supreme Court, what we've got to bear in mind is that what God has used as a movement, as a pattern, and as a model for impacting a nation, he moves from the inside out. There are hearts devoted to the ways of the Lord, combined with a ministry devoted to the word of the Lord, and the word of the Lord makes its way out so that people understand the issue is not so much equality, the issue is not so much sexuality, the issue is not so much liberty, the issue is ultimately authority, because whoever has authority defines sexuality, whoever has authority defines liberty, And whoever has authority defines equality. Now, the Christian understands this because the believer holds to the authoritative word of the Lord and understands then that the big issue of the hour, which is not being discussed, is the issue of authority. Authority defines sexuality, liberty, and equality, you see. We are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Not endowed by our government, nor are we endowed by the people of this land. In other words, when you hold to the idea of intelligent design, the designer, as we've said, is the definer. And so as the Supreme Court has got to grapple then with the whole matter of the institution, let's say if marriage, It's important for churches to be able to articulate there's a designer who not only created this world, but designed the institution of marriage. 
And furthermore, in the relationship of the bride to the bridegroom, the church to Jesus Christ, the bride is depicted as the her, and the bridegroom is depicted as the he. And as it comes together, and you see how God has worked out this principle, it all begins by answering the question, who has ultimate authority? Authentic spiritual awakenings begin with revival. It's shaped by sound biblical teaching. This means that a heart's got to be devoted to the ways of the Lord, verse 3 through 6. It means that ministry has got to be devoted to the word of the Lord, verse 7 through 9. And when they come together, merge, then we've got spiritual awakening on our hands, such as what happened under this particular pastor, who now appears on the screen, Jonathan Edwards, who is incredibly used by God prior to us being formally established as a nation, where in the 1730s he was speaking on justification by faith alone and wrote in December, the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in. Revival grew. Souls did, as it were, come by floods to Jesus Christ. He wrote in 1735, the town seemed to be so full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, nor so full of joy, yet so full of distress as it was then. Fascinating, that combination. To cleanse hearts, it was heaven. To convicted hearts, it was hell. When God is in our midst. Now, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. There was a movement of the Holy Spirit. Heart devoted to the ways of the Lord. Ministry devoted to the word of the Lord. And likewise, flowing out of what was happening in the spiritual awakening via the instruments in our land of Whitfield and Wesley and tremendously gifted pastors such as Jonathan Edwards, would come this next man who appears on the scene whose name was John Witherspoon. This man was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He was a pastor, he was a professor, and furthermore, he became president of Princeton. He had such profound influence upon the whole idea of how the biblical shapes the cultural and the cultural shapes the political that he mentored James Madison, who would eventually become president of the United States, And furthermore, the one who was so greatly involved in the shaping of our Constitution, as well as the Bill of Rights. What we are saying here, then, is that revival is your starting point. You begin with revival, shaped by sound biblical teaching. Notice that just as Jehoshaphat would send out these teachers to be able to explain the whole issue of who has authority, because the one with authority defines sexuality, equality, and liberty. Out of this, then, is a ministry devoted to the word of the Lord. And Jesus used the very same principle when he said, all authorities invested in him. 
And he sends his disciples out. And as they are sent out to make disciples of others, they baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, as you and I look then, what we find is that there's a pattern developing here. And when we grasp this pattern, and we understand what God wants to do in our midst, then we look at the issues of the hour nationally, but we begin with the issues of our heart personally. Did the revival start within? Some of the tests are, am I willing? Am I willing to repent? Am I willing to re-engage in a relationship I'd rather turn my back on? Am I willing to forgive? Am I willing to set aside bias, prejudice, and prejudging people? Am I willing for God to be God? And not assume that authority for myself. That's the breaking of the ground. That's the beginning of spiritual awakening. It begins with revival, shaped by sound biblical teaching. It's the starting point, but it's not the ending point. Because once we've got this first distinctive work out, then we're ready to embrace this second distinctive. And it's going to flow out of chapter 19, 4, down through verse 11. And as we turn to that section, here is your second distinctive, that authentic spiritual awakenings continue with reformation, reform, which is distinguished by genuine judicial transformation. You see that appearing on the screen now. In other words, once you and I have hammered out the biblical, then we're ready to embrace the issues of the judicial. It's fascinating. It's called the Supreme Court. Ask yourself, where is supreme authority? As you ponder the significance of what's occurring in our land at this time, notice a passage that would have driven, guided, directed Jehoshaphat as he would put together a team of people who would be serving as justices in the land. Deuteronomy chapter 16, 18 through 20 is the informing text behind 2 Chronicles 19. Because all kings were told to do this. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes. In every town the Lord your God's giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now the king was responsible for knowing those words. Jehoshaphat, whose name means the Lord judges, 
now takes these principles and picks up in verse 4 after a war has been fought, chapter 19, he lived in Jerusalem, went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim, and what does he do? Turns them back to the Lord. Before the external comes the internal. But we don't stay with the internal. We move from the internal to the external. He started by turning them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And then in verse 5, he appointed judges in the land, in each of the fortified cities of Judah. And he told them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. Look then at what he's doing in verses 4 through 7. He is now establishing a basis of authority, and it's not himself. Astounding. He, in essence, is saying, the government is not going to have final authority. God is. This is a king who is submitting himself to the law of God. It's lex rex, not rex lex in the Latin. So as he submits himself as king... What are the people going to do? They're going to say, my word? He's not assuming ultimate authority. In other words, what he is really doing is submitting himself, demonstrating accountability. Which means then that our justices are called to be people of accountability before the law, not those who have authority over the law which means you pray for those who now appear on the screen and you ponder their rulings, you ponder their decisions, you pray, you uplift them, you burden for them. Now look carefully and you want to note who they are. There's nine of them. There's Judge Clarence Thomas seated. Next to him, Antonin Scalia, Chief Justice Roberts, Anthony Kennedy, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Above, Sonia Sotomayor. Next to her, Judge Breyer. Next to him, Sam Alito. The last, Elena Kagan, she was appointed most recently by President Obama. What stands out is that at this moment, five of the nine justices are over the age of 70, which means that our land is about to face some major transitional moments. We've got to bear in mind that in an election every four years of a president, the elections of senators, who you choose, who you vote for, will in turn be involved in the nomination process of those who sit upon this court and will have to process decisions such as abortion, such as same-sex marriage and the like. 
And how do you work out the moral shaping the legal? How do we establish authority and yet accountability? How do we work this out to such a degree that we can move from revival to reform and allow for the designer to be involved as the definer in shaping what ought to be? We ask these questions. And so rather than activist justices, we become burdened for what we will call originalists, those that are interested in the original intent of what was written. Likewise, now you go back, and in verse 8, in Jerusalem also, he goes to the very center of leadership. Jehoshaphat appointed some of the Levites, priests, heads of Israelite families, to administer the law of Jehoshaphat? No. The law of Israel? No. The law of Judah? No. The law of the Lord, and to settle disputes, and they lived in Jerusalem. You must, he gave them these orders, you must serve faithfully and wholeheartedly in the fear of the Lord. In every case that comes before you and your fellow countrymen who live in the cities, whether bloodshed or other concerns of the law, commands, decrees, ordinances, you are to warn them not to sin against the Lord, not against the government. Otherwise, his wrath will come on you. Your brothers do this, you will not sin. And so you look at the cases, and I hope you spend time using your, your, your search engines to look at what's happening and decisions that are occurring within this nation. And I was pondering that because as, let's say, the whole matter of the Defense of Marriage Act and the California Constitutional Amendment were being argued before the Supreme Court, what all of a sudden stopped me dead in my tracks, got me out of my, my chair behind my desk as I was preparing, and I stared out the window, was that the very same amendment that was used to decide Roe v. Wade is now the same amendment that is being argued for regarding the same-sex marriage matter. The 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment. And so I went over to the side of my office and I pulled out my, my constitution and I turned to the 14th Amendment. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the U.S., nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property which was used in 73 to support abortion. Though I'd like to know what about the life liberty of the child in the womb. But likewise, this is now being argued in the very same way with regard to homosexuality. And so as, as this was being argued by Ted Olson, a lawyer making the argument, Judge Justice Scalia then asked, Ted Olson, when that requirement of the Constitution requiring same-sex marriage came about, Olson declined to respond. 
knowing that the adoption of 14th Amendment occurred in 1868 that had to do with the abolition of slavery, not the matter of abortion, let alone homosexuality. So Mr. Olson just simply went on to argue that the evolution of the culture has changed the meaning of the amendment. The believer holds to originalism, not activism. Likewise here now, these judges were being guided to understand that they were under authority. Therefore, God was producing accountability, which leads me to this next picture that appears on the scene as Chief Justice Roberts is being sworn in. I looked up the oath that he took. I, John Glover Roberts, Jr., he would say in 2005, do solemnly swear as his arm is lifted not towards self but upward, that I will administer justice without respect to persons, do equal right to the poor, to the rich. I will faithfully and impartially discharge and perform all the duties incumbent upon me as Chief Justice under the Constitution and laws of the United States. So help me. God, with the arm lifted upward and not pointed inward, What I'm saying is that revival is the starting point, not the ending point. And reformation is the ending point, but not the starting point. And there has to be a connection. There has to be a combination. And if we disconnect them, either we have a privatized faith where it's revival alone, or else a politicized faith where it's reformation alone. But we teach the whole counsel of God in the scriptures as Paul spoke of. And when we pull all this together, life begins to make sense. Because everything comes under the authority of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Which gets us thinking about two of the significant symbols standing outside the Supreme Court that appear next on your screen. One, you'll notice here, is blindfolded justice. It's the contemplation of justice statute. Blindfolded justice. And yet, when you look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 7, now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. And you combine that with that on the right side, the authority of law statute located to the right of the front steps. And right above that statue is who? Look at this next scene. Moses. The Ten Commandments. And so it's the rule of law, not the rule of of Jehoshaphat. Amariah, the chief priest, in verse 11, will be over you in any matter concerning the law, Lord. Zebediah, son of Ishmael, the leader of the tribe of Judah, will be over you in any matter concerning the king. In other words, the separation of powers. And the Levites will serve as officials before you. 
And it was the separation of powers that Jesus had to navigate through as he went from the Jewish court into the Gentile court, Pilate. But now you and I see how revival and reformation, revival and reform combine together and therefore act with courage. And may the Lord be with those who do well. And we do well to understand how these basic principles relate to life today. So you tie all that together. And there's this great awakener by the name of Whitfield who makes his way through the land. Hearts are stirred. Souls are revived. Starting point, but not an ending point. Because the revival would lead to reform. The structures are established. Now likewise, if you are such a burdened individual for the ways of what is occurring within this land. What you do is you follow the pattern and the principles that God has laid out for us here. And as we move from the spiritual, biblical, through the cultural to the political, we see how all this fits together under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we fit it together this way. God and God alone receives the glory and the honor. Let's stand together. So, our Father, we've got to be we've got to be biblically committed, culturally aware, politically astute, not political to the exclusion of biblical or cultural. We've got to see how everything flows naturally under all areas of life, because all is sacred, because all is yours. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof you will. So give us now tremendous insight in the times in which we live to take changeless truths, apply them to changing times, and do it in a way that leads people to saving faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, equipping people to grow in their understanding and their worldview, so that we can see people, countless people, making a difference. All for your glory. To you and to you alone, receive the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.